Breakfast Metal episode 74. This is the second and final part of my dive into Roadrunner Records between the years of uh, 1986 to 1995. So in this one we're doing the last few years of 92 through to 95, which I think we'll find pretty dense on the... Uh, on the releases. So to kick things off, 1992 is a year I hold up as one of the true great years of um, extreme metal. Like there was so much good stuff put out in this time period. Interestingly though, not that much on Roadrunner. There's a few decent albums in there, but it's hardly like their strongest one. Um, so once we're going into too much detail on like, the Exploited put out Troops of Tomorrow, um, more Racer X stuff. Marty Freeman puts out yet yeah, another solo album. None of this is particularly noteworthy. Most of all, Fate do the um, a dangerous meeting split, sort of showing the the weird reignition of Merciful Fate uh, while uh, King Dying continues on as a separate project. Uh, Sadus put out The Vision of Misery, and I'm feeling increasingly guilty that I didn't get into Sadus ahead of this. One I did get a good, good listen to, though, um, and I've known for years, is X Horde's second album, The Law. And this, this is one of those bands, if you're not familiar with them, they are most notable for sounding so much like Pantera that you totally could convince me they were Pantera. Like, the only big difference for me is they don't quite have but well, they just don't they don't have Dimebag Daryl they don't have his incredible lead guitar chops so when it comes to the solo you go oh shit yeah this isn't this isn't Pantera but hardly an unoriginal band like both of them came to that sound like a yeah, fairly similar time period I believe like um, I don't know what you call this sound like to my mind it's an evolution of Thrash but maybe um Maybe groove metal is a more more effective title, and, and with the law you just get like eight nine tracks of just really great whatever that genre is. Like it is intense. Like the the vocals have that Phil Anselmo I'm gonna kick your ass vibe to them. Like this constant very like in your face style. Excellent riffing that you. You know, like would neatly fit into later Pantera's catalogue, just possibly without quite as like chunky a bass tone. Like, uh, but overall, I I do really enjoy the lore. Uh, the only issue with this album is it has that thing of dropping a cover halfway through the runtime, and it's Into the Void by Black Sabbath, and Black Sabbath are a weird band to cover for these guys, and because. They don't have any of the jazziness or, like, kind of experimentation of the rhythm section. They play that pretty straight. So what you've got is a slightly more straighter version of Into the Void, but with, like, southern rock vocals rather than Aussie, which, to me, is just painful to listen to. So other than skipping that track, it's a really solid album. So now what I came to in the research of this episode that I'd never really given time before is, uh, and it's kind of a legendary one to have missed, is... Uh, Retribution by Malevolent Creation, their their second album. So with Malevolent Creation, I'd heard their third album, Stillborn, and found it so tedious, I'd just uh, like eternally written the band off, and possibly that was really unfair. So kind of one of the one of the many greats from Buffalo, New York. Yeah, like their second album was clearly like a well anticipated thing, like the follow up to Ten Commandments, which also in the listening for this is 
really solid album. But yeah, like Retribution, they just get it so right on that album. Like tonally, it sounds amazing. Like Brett Hoffman's vocal performance is really cool on it. But yeah, this is it's got a real like nastiness to the sound of this album. I, I was really amazed how cool this was it's a, obviously yet another scott burns production job but clearly by 92 he'd really got the hang of what he's doing and yeah but more than anything with this album i just love the guitar tone malevolent creations are very much like you know frills death metal this is exactly what you would expect them to sound like but it's just done really well um and an excellent uh, Seagrave cover as well of a big winged monster over a creepy looking labyrinth fits in really nicely. Yeah, it's a hard one to talk a lot about because essentially it's just death metal done spectacularly well. But yeah, possibly I'd been unfairly writing this band off. Some of that probably somewhat to do with personalities of the members involved. If you if you want to get put off a band. Go go listen. To, go look up uh, Phil Fasciana's uh, uh, Metal Archives page. The top paragraph on that is is hilariously off-putting. But yeah, like this album, all that sort of context aside, this album is really solid stuff. wasn't quite expecting in this that turned out to be like a real revelation there is actually mismentioning in the 1991 section their debut into the depths of sorrow is um texas's solitude eternus who again feel like a weird fit for um roadrunner records because they're playing this like epic doom metal like very candle mass influenced sound in 92 which i, I just I don't know, I don't imagine this was popular at the time. And it feels, yeah, it feels like one of those ones that um, it's amazing they were sort of being plugged. But so I'm familiar with them through their final album alone, which is really solid stuff. 
but actually features quite a different lineup. I think there's a massive sort of lineup change in the band. Like that album's late in the 2000s, and there's a big lineup change around like the end of the 90s. But this album, Beyond the Crimson Horizon, is like with their classic lineup, and it is just so well put together. As I say, at its core, it is, think like nightfall era candle mass but it is done so well the album has one of the most fantastic intros in the song seeds of Des of the desolation oh, sorry seeds of the desolate has this like minute 30 of like gentle melodic guitars and rob Lowe, the vocalist singing in this incredibly like melodic like soulful style with little bits of lead guitar it's just like that first minute 30 is an absolute beautiful piece of music and then the heavy guitars come in and we get into the like proper candle massy doom that like kind of big slow guitar riffs with like really massive sounding drums bass like thick wall of guitars but doing these slow purposeful riffs and then amazing guitar solos thrown in like at the sort of middle eight of the song like the the, the thing with that kind of my style as well is it's quite um structurally formulates the wrong word but it's it, it does follow that like kind of verse chorus structure because it's so much about excellent vocal hooks and solitude eternus have excellent vocal hooks in space like Rob Lowe is an incredible singer. You can see why he was picked up for Candlemas for those those three albums he did with them. And personally, I'm a huge fan of those Candlemas albums. I I feel he he did really like revitalize the band. Um, yeah, and you can see why he was chosen with with Solitude Eternals. They are doing such a good job of that sound. And unlike say something we were covering in the previous episode, a band like. Um, Crimson Dawn like this this doesn't have that level of cheesy silliness to it this is this is epic powerful just incredibly well executed music it doesn't have I mean some will find this cheesy I think some people will find any of that kind of bombastic singing cheesy but for my mind it doesn't really have that and it is just like such a well executed epic doom album. Also, I think I just said Crimson Dawn there, I meant to say Crimson Glory.
album I remember really enjoying, but actually coming back to didn't quite hit me in the same way. So, August 92, we get Fear Factory's debut, Soul of the New Machine. So those of you familiar with later Fear Factory, Soul of the New Machine's quite different to that. It's a lot more industrial death metal. This is very kind of electronic, but just hefty death metal. Like, it... It's got more in common with kind of that kind of street cleaner, uh, Godflesh kind of sound than it does actually like even a lot of of later Fear Factory. And like in its core, he's the very hefty riffing, but like kind of upped in intensity by this really robot. Like everything has this incredibly robotic sound to it. The drums don't sound like real, they sound like mechanical, and Dino, um, this guitar playing, also really has that sort of mechanical vibe to it. Uh, the only thing that sort of gives it any kind of humanity is is Burton's like occasional kind of cleaner vocals. Like, even his, his growls are quite, quite kind of mechanical in a weird way. The problem is, as a whole, I find Soul of the New Machine kind of dull and it it sort of outstays its welcome as well at a near like hour in runtime of it it's sort of doing one idea quite well but then it goes on for a very long time i think fear factory are quite a diverse band on that front people people either absolutely love what they do or just can't quite get it and uh, I, I had real high hopes for soul of a new machine but when i was listening to it like early in the week it just just wasn't hitting me like I was hoping for. Next up we have an album that I did really enjoy though. This is Atrocity, the German Atrocity that is, uh, with their second album, oh, I'm just gonna, I have no chance of this German title, Todd S. Hensuch? Possibly? Um, yeah, so Atrocity are a band that started life as kind of a death metal band um their first album hallucination is definitely in that vein and this album still is um metal archives has them <laughs> genre listed as various because they go through so many ridiculous changes over the years that they become completely impossible to uh categorize and that happens like almost immediately on their 94 album blut which is one i like i still have no idea what my feelings are on it i was confused by it but uh, this album, uh, which I won't say the title of again, is amazing. It's um, It puts me in mind of an ever so slightly more focused, phlebotomized. It feels very much like something, like, particularly for the year it came out as well, 1992. It fits very neatly into a lot of that, like, death metal hidden gems kind of stuff I was playing. Like, those bands that were doing something ever so slightly odd with a kind of central core of death metal. So... This album is, like, it's quite technical in places. In many ways, like, there's a lot of riffs on it reminding me of parts of spiritual healing, but then every time they sort of set into groove, they start playing, they start doing really odd things. Like, the album's very technical, but will regularly slow right down to an absolute crawl for, like, a really doomy moment. Um... And then, like, some of the faster technical bits will get really strange in almost that, like, kind of Finnish style. Then, to add on top of that, there's all these neoclassical touches. There's, like, the, the intro to the album sounds like a piece of classical music. There's little bits of, like, keyboards throughout the mix. And then there is an actual, like, there's a full four-piece choir guessing in the album, like, 
you know, credited with tenor, baritone, bass, and uh, counter tenor voices. Um, it's particularly there's a particularly amazing moment, like in the track "The Sky Turned Red," where it starts out very much sounding like the track "Spiritual Healing," and then, then just for the chorus, you get the the main guy screams, accompanied by this four voice choir. So yeah, Alex Kroll's screams played off against that. It's quite amazing stuff. Like, yeah, this is one of those albums that, like, I just found, like, supremely exciting for throwing some really odd stuff into the mix. of It's a very brave death metal album. Like, nothing about it, like, is is your usual. Like, the album cover's really weird. It's, like, sort of just picture of, like, dead or dying roses. Um, yeah, it's... It is very exciting and very well executed, more so than a lot of those hidden gems ones. This, while the structure is experimental, sounds super professional. It's, yeah, it's very, very well executed. And, you know, rarely for a band from Germany playing death metal, like, these guys actually, you know, did get some attention for this. I think the reason Atrocity, to some extent, are less known these days is because they took such a left turn on their next album and continue just making weird maneuvers throughout. I think a lot of this lineup will survive through the the changes. And nowadays, like uh, Alex is probably most famed for his time with um, with Levi's. Um, uh, like he's married to to their singer, and I've seen him on stage. He's the guy I mainly knew for standing in the background and shouting "Yeah" a lot during. Uh, during their set so quite a quite a change in direction in terms of sound but yeah if you if you like any of that weirder end of death metal if you're someone who has a lot of time for bands like phlebotomize or pamphamonium this isn't quite that but i think it will i think it will appeal
1993 is an absolutely incredible year for Roadrunner Record. There's a slew of albums I've I've never heard that came out this year, um, and a few that I've you know let, yet to delve into. I believe I've yet another one. Uh, Brugiera have a really famous album from this period. Um, <laughs> there is that aforementioned Eleven Creation album that I never quite got. But there is so much great death metal from this year. I don't need to dwell on that. Right near the start in January, we have. Gorgatz's second album, The Erosion of Sanity. So with relatively the same lineup as the previous album, Gorgatz suddenly found themselves. They went from being this kind of like also ran Canadian death metal band, but albeit a very good one, but just like, you know, slightly late to it and not doing anything revolutionary, to really doing something revolutionary. Like Erosion of Sanity, they try so many sort of new and interesting things while keeping that core very based on like you know the ideas and aesthetics of death metal the album sounds incredible like that bass tone in the opener of with their flesh he'll create sounds so kind of gnarly and heavy and then when all the guitars come in and luke's really found his voice this one he sounds like he will on for now on later albums he really has like a very unique like high pitched slightly slightly like pained growl um as i said tonally this album is really strong but also there's some very like decent creative ideas like they they throw in a lot of moments where they will suddenly slow down for a really like apocalyptic sounding riff there's a couple of moments in well in it as well like a a path beyond premonition has like this really slow bass line over over but like quite thick and heavy in the mix over a really fast guitar line which very much sounded like a precursor to that sort of like afterbirth style of bass playing in death metal there's keys blended in at certain points and done so very tastefully. They're never, never at odds with what's going on. Just, yeah, just sounding really, like, just more ominous, more evil. It's got a kind of a very odd Dan Seagrave cover, one that's, like, quite hard to explain what's going on, but, yeah, quite an iconic kind of color scheme and look to it. And I think this, for many people, is the the peak with Gorgats. I remember, like... um sort of Shelby I've mentioned before like on his old podcast Death Metal Bads he used to talk about this being like a real high point um and uh like Nathaniel from Damon as well I think really really loves this since he's this is like a real pinnacle for the band and I can understand that personally I I do love the move into Obscura but when Golgots moved to Obscura, that is like a completely different band. None of the the rest of the lineup who had been constant to these two albums come with Luke on that one. That is very much his vision with a whole new new backing band for it. And that's when they'll take off into like 
the real weird realms really inventing inside the genre. But I like this because with Erosion of Sanity, we get something that's still at its core, very much a death metal album, whereas Obscure is into the realms of almost like avant-garde music, like, I guess still a somewhat death metal core, like, that's the umbrella I give to it, but it doesn't sound like any other death metal. <laughs> we have a band i can't believe i've never spoken about before on this or at least an album uh this is disincarnate with their one and only album dreams of a carrying kind from florida um so this this band like uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether it's james murphy's solo project or a kind of full band that just happened to do this one-off album but yeah so it's it's this great kind of lone thing where there's no follow-up there's a, there's like a short demo before it but it kind of stands alone and it's just a monumentally good death metal album kind of not in a totally dissimilar vein from the gorguts album we just played but not maybe not quite as inventive but it's just such a decent sounding death metal album and with something i really like in the genre of massive changes of paces if you take a track on it like monica the sleeping marches it goes from like a kind of hefty doomy part into a really like technical blasty section into a melodic section and there's a lot of that going on throughout um 
like James Murphy is the uh, oh no, no shares guitar duty actually, he, but like James Murphy's guitaring his leads you you've heard on Cause of Death the guy really knows his way around a guitar solo and any kind of lead passages sound amazing have this brilliant tone to them but like the rest of the riffing is this really well executed occasionally technical occasionally massively like simplistic uh but just really well put together really well constructed songs uh thomas the drummer like uh throws it like does some really solid like double kick work for now. It's not like the most fancy drummer, but the way everything just like locks in, like this album is like yeah, just really in the pocket. The sound of it when they go into this fast section it just sounds so heavy. And um focus uh, Brian Segon has essentially he's got his one death metal noise, but I really like it. It's like a, it's a good low guttural with a fair amount of enunciation, which is kind of like my favorite thing in from death metal vocalists. That's like the sound I'm after. Um, and yeah, it's just brilliantly well pulled off. Like for its like almost 15 minute runtime, like every track on this is really solid. There's some standouts like the stench of paradise burning, uh. Monica the Sleeping Marches, as I mentioned. Confine of Shadows has got this, yeah, really awesome sections for it. And the lyrics, while not being particularly groundbreaking or anything, all have a certain epicness to them. It's sort of actually... An album it somewhat puts me in mind of is some like the later monstrosity stuff, like um, Spiritual Apocalypse, I think, has a similar vibe to it. That sort of, like... A band, you get the sense throughout they could be more technical than they're being, but they're sort of like holding it back just to write really decent riffs. And yeah, that's what you just get absolutely tons of on Dreams of a Carrying Kind. Just amazing, amazing death metal riffing, just really, really well executed with an excellent kind of massive, clear, but still kind of gnarly tone to it yeah it's it's such a good album
next up is an album I'm going to kind of skip past because I've never really cracked it. This is Suffocation's Breeding the Spawn, their, their second album. Obviously, there's more from Suffocation coming in this episode. This one, there's nothing wrong with it. I like, And it is a well-loved album, but there's something about the tone of it just totally doesn't work for me. And as such, it's just, yeah, a Suffocation album I, I don't revisit quite as much as some of the others. Uh, moving on from that, though, we can go to a really divisive album. Um, this is Pestilence's fourth album, Spheres. So this is an album that, like, really, I think, like, I think more so than divided people, I think really pissed people off when it came out. And I think a large part of that is I've seen some of the interviews from around the time, and Patrick Manley was, he's a man famed for saying some quite, uh, divisive stuff and he was off on this whole kick of uh death metal stupid uh now like the cool thing is jazz fusion and what he put out is not a jazz fusion album but it's core it's still kind of death metally and i think he was more or less doing what chuck shoulder from death was doing at the time of somewhat distancing himself from the more simplistic end of death metal and throwing some other influences in there but he just presented it in such an obnoxious way. I can imagine if I'd been a fan of the band at the time, this would have upset me. So I can see why like people were on the wrong foot going into it. There's a slight lineup change. Um, Tony Choi is being replaced with a Netherlands-based bass player, the equally talented Euron Paul Fessling, who um, most famously is the fretless bass player on the two really famous obscure albums, Cosmogenesis and Omnivium, and has actually recently rejoined the, the band. An absolutely incredible bass player. And and unlike Tony Joy, like he's even more up in the mix. He can actually be heard in this album. And personally, like super controversial thought, I think Spheres might be my favourite Pestilence album. And nothing against the first three. They're all really excellent releases. This one just scratches that similar itch to... Cynics focus, uh, death like individual thought patterns, symbolic kind of stuff. Atheist, it's got a lot of that in there. Now, the the sort of weird thing with this, the bit that makes it not quite as legendary as some of those albums I've just mentioned, is these. Uh, there's a really large use of guitar synths, which I've never quite worked out what they are, but they make a big kind of synth sound. And Cynic used a lot of them on Focus as well, which obviously be getting to at some point as well um and they while they're layered into the tracks they sound great like in mind reflection it sounds really cool but then there's these interlude tracks like uh voices from within or um uh levels of oh, not levels of perception or orion eyes and the interlude tracks are just like much like they were in testimony but even longer just like, oh, and here's another song. Like, here's another completely random thing that's not in the same genre. And those bits don't really work. But, so, the primary sound on this, if you listen to, like, the opening of Mind Reflections, what it really puts me in mind of is if someone just made, like, Voivod way heavier and even more technical. Like, that opening riff to Mind Reflections is a total Voivod riff. So for all the kind of jazz fusion talk, it's just ended up at that point of, like, some of the things Piggy would do with guitars are just like, here's some really weird chords to play with distortion. And here's quite a strange progression to go underneath that. Even uh, Patrick's vocals even sound a bit like uh, if someone made Snake's voice way harsher. Like, they're... So, 
there's a lot to latch on to if you're into that slightly more progressive end of things. Like this is still a heavy album, and yeah, I don't, I don't think it's really deserving of the hatred. It sort of still gets like it's, it's a very inventive, weird album. It's probably oversold, particularly by the band themselves, as um, far more uh, progressive and odd than it kind of actually is. Like the, the song is still quite short as well. They're like averaging out of three minutes. So he's quite like condensed, really, um, really kind of, I guess not to the point because it is quite experimental and almost meandering in places, but they don't overstay their welcome. They're not self-indulgent. I guess that, that was what I was looking for. The album cover's a bit of a weird one. It's the, the weird device from the front cover of Testimony being thrown <laughs> thrown into space uh looks kind of cool uh pestilence logo is still fuck ugly and kind of ruins an otherwise nice bit of art i don't know why i have such a downer on pestilence covers but i really do uh, something about them offends me <laughs> uh, but yeah like spheres i really really highly rate and Sadly, this is going to be the end for this era of pestilence. They'll sort of bring things back in the future, but I never think they quite they quite live up to the the promise of those first four albums. But if you've skipped Spheres because you've like kind of heard some of the bad rap it gets, I I'd, I'd go back. I'd advise giving it another look. It's it's actually a very interesting album. <laughs> to death's uh fifth album individual thought patterns so uh one of the rare repeating members with death uh chuck keeps uh steve giorgio on bass but then also recruits gene hoagland uh then known for dark angel which is actually quite funny thinking about it of like the rhythm section for individual thought patterns is essentially like some of the best thrash rhythm section going despite the album not being really that thrashy and then um I don't think he's ever a full-time member. He's just a guest on this. Andy LaRope does a, a load of guitar solos for it. 
Um, and what's interesting with individual thought patterns is it's probably the most melodic album Death ever did. Like it's very, it's probably the most accessible. Like these, the songs are really kind of like to the point like they, they don't meander like some of the next two albums will into like the more like seven minute kind of realm they're structurally kind of more predictable but the technicality has been upped from human like this has got even more kind of complex and when i say melodic like the melodicism is still super complex chuck's still doing that slightly softening thing with his vocals and has got even more philosophical with the lyrical delivery. Slight problem with this episode in general is like talking about an album like Individual Thought Patterns, really, uh, all the Death Hounds we covered, I'd happily dedicate 20 minutes to it, but the format won't really allow it. But yeah, so going back to Individual Thought Patterns, like listening to it in preparation for this. It struck me as one I, I possibly overlook at their stuff. I don't I don't listen to it quite as often as they do, say, human or symbolic either side, but it's it's wall to wall brilliance. Like it, every track on it is amazing. It has some of my favourite guitar solos I think there are in any any death tracks, particularly you know, stuff like Trapped in the Corner has some amazing work in it. Um yeah, there's a load to it. Uh it's just yeah, it just for whatever reason it's not the one I go to quite as much, but it's excellent. It is absolute excellence. And I guess that that speaks to the quality of death that um I'd probably rate this near the bottom of their catalogue. And for any other band it would be a kind of absolute crowning achievement. Yeah, really, really incredible album. <laughs> covering is uh, Typo Negative's Bloody Kisses released like a month or so later 
And this shows kind of the diversity and maybe slight move in direction that you you will see coming in Roadrunner's like uh, style as we move into like, the the sort of mid nineties. So they've they actually put out everything type of negative did. I sort of missed out slow deeper hard because i don't know in hindsight i don't think it's an album that really holds up anymore bloody kisses on the other hand has some absolutely incredible moments to it it is it is a deeply flawed album i would say like if that's not too harsh but the moments that are good are really really good but the obvious two singles of christian woman and black number one are this incredible kind of goth rock meets kind of heavy metal style that was really well pulled off by his band like the incredible combination of like josh silver's keyboard work and um kenny hickey's guitars which like just blend together to make this massive sound with, with that huge reverb bass um and then pete Steele's just utterly incredible supremely low sleazy like just real like i don't know there's something there's something wrong about pete Steele's voice but in such a perfect way the guy the guy is incredible sounding and on tracks like that like you can see why these guys got a lot of attention early on because they did sound incredibly unique now that sort of brings me to the major problem of the album though is as unique as they were this is a band who could never stop pissing around the intro machine screw is just fucking annoying. And, like, once you've heard it... Like, in the days where you'd be ripping CDs... I know I still do that a lot personally, but most of you don't. Like, if you were to rip this as a CD, you would just not rip this song with it. Because there's no way you want to hear it again. And there's so many silly, like, interludes, like Dark Side of the Womb... Um, or Freyway come out and play. Like, it's just not really necessary stuff and then then you got weird tracks like kill all the white people which like became a live staple for them but i don't get why like, it, it doesn't make any sense to me but then later on the album, we do get really interesting moments like bloody kisses of death in the family sounds like utterly incredible and there's some the really great tracks in the late runtime but the album is 73 minutes long and, like, the fact this album is such a monumental length and so much of it is just kind of being silly, it, yeah, it's a frustrating one. The moments where it's at its best are proper, like, 10 out of 10. And they were a band that would evolve, like, as everyone knows, like, October Rusty's, like, their incredible, like, well-loved one, the next album, where they do take it all a little more seriously and for me personally I, I think their final album dead again was absolutely spot on but bloody kisses is a really interesting like sort of start point to the band like i, I maybe wouldn't start there now but they you can definitely see like the interesting evolution they go forward and there were some really good ideas at this point
an album that's always really disappointed me, and this is the third Annihilator album, Set the World on Fire. It's it's one of those ones where it just something was lost between this and the previous two albums. Like it just doesn't have the kind of technicality or aggression of the previous two. It just feels kind of stale despite the addition of like excellent drummer mike mangini like most famously dream theater now um yeah it feels like stepped down in technicality and just totally feels like a step back from their their sort of glory days of the first two albums and i i think this album is sadly like largely responsible for annihilator not being more of a a known thing because they they were never able to really follow um follow up those first two or at least like not for a little while yet um there's old episode we did where i went through their entire discography and there are some great stuff later on um like there are a few of their later albums i think really really do hit it better than this one but yeah they were never a band that should have gone more melodic this leads me now i can be more positive about this is sepultura's chaos ad so again like this is an album i think where i'm not gonna be able to add too much to the discussion like anyone listening to this i will be amazed if you're not already familiar with this album and haven't completely sort of settled your opinion on it I, it it's a debatable one because many feel sepultura's glory days ended with a rise many feel it's with chaos ad some even post roots and that but like this is certainly their commercial success this is roadrunner's first release that broke the billboard top 40 this this thing was fucking huge and it, and it is that slight um change from arise to chaos ad like they do start slipping into more of a i guess groove metal territory that stuff i was talking about of um Eagle Calavera's like catchy work on the toms like doing those like cool rolling sections that becomes even more prevalent on tracks like Territory or Amen that is really really clear the political nature of the lyrics has got so front and center like opener refuse resist is so sort of clearly like this kind of um very anti kind of oppression anthem and a lot of the songs are of that nature like slave new world also has that that kind of thing to it and again another really strong opening of a um of a sepulture album those first three tracks refuse resist territory slave new world all kind of seen as absolute classics of the catalog and still stuff like the band will always put in live sets to this day the the album is more polished than anything they'd done before um i i think he's pretty solid throughout like um maybe it drags a little towards the middle and i know a lot of people find biotech as godzilla to be like a step too far lyrically it just comes across like a touch silly but yeah it's under two minutes like it goes goes by pretty swiftly as i mentioned earlier talking about a rise uh the cover was something that when I saw this as a kid, it massively struck me. It's it is a brilliant piece of artwork and really sort of draws you in. I'm not quite sure what uh, what relevance it's got to the the subject matter, but it's yeah, it's a great focal point for the album. 
and there's not much that is greatly different between this and Arise, other than, as I say, a slight, slight closer approach to groove metal. There, there's a lot in... I think we'll get to Machine Head's debut soon. There's a lot in common between these two albums that isn't necessarily there between the others. Like, that more simple kind of groove-inflected riffing that, like, if you listen to, like, bits of uh, Refuse Resist where the, the actual guitar parts are so incredibly simplistic and, you know, a lot of what Max would take on to Soulfly is kind of born on this album although at the core it's still it still has a lot of old sepulture to it i can understand like the issues with it like these slight changes between that and arise but for me like maybe it got me too young and i've got the nostalgia but i just absolutely love tracks like territory and slave new world i, I think they're incredible <laughs> incredibly fond of uh if we've done a really in-depth review of this one actually if you go back to episode 19 of like one of my favorite episodes me and rob ever did um this is cynics focus um and this really charts where we are with actually death metal at this point in time so this is really late 93 or well, september 93 and you've seen that evolution you've seen where death are with spiritual um, not spiritual healing individual thought patterns where pestilence have gone to with spheres like atheist like a uh, long been going at this point death metal to remain interesting was having to evolve out into something quite different and focus feels like the the kind of end point for that jazz infused death metal because it's something that's almost left behind its death metal roots after those four great demos um cynic put out they had some lineup changes and I don't know quite what happened going into Focus, but they really went for something different with this. Picking up Sean Malone on bass. Sean Malone is probably my all-time favourite bass player. I absolutely love his playing. He has this 
just wonderfully freestyle. It just there's something so incredibly natural yet massively complex yet so brilliantly catchy. Like if you watch a playthrough of like the opening track Veil of Maya, there's a great video of him playing the bass for it. It's it's just fucking perfection. And that mix with Sean Reinhardt's incredibly complex yet soulful drum work. It, it's just absolutely brilliant. Sean would be a massive loss to the the metal scene. Like he sadly passed away early this year. Um and they just between those this album and human we spoke about recently you can see what a massive effect he had on the kind of the increasing the ideas of what could be done with extreme metal percussion so where this album really obviously gets odd is paul uh masvidal's um contributions he um he does clean vocals throughout this album, but the clean vocals are entirely through a vocal effect that makes his voice sound almost like a synth. Um, the like they they have a couple of screen vocalists adding additional backing vocals who aren't actually officially members of the band, and also uh, Jason Goebel and Paul, um, the two guitarists, are both cr also credited with guitar synths, much like with the Pestilence album. But where this differs from Spheres is Spheres, you go, oh right, that's a guitar synth moment. With this, there are so many layers and odd stuff going on, and the guitar, it's not like both guitars suddenly go to synth all of a sudden. It's like there'll be one guitar synth and three layers of guitar, and then like one of the guitars will be clean tone, one will be distortion. There is so much complex stuff happening at any given moment on this album. Like on top of the multiple vocal stars, there's also a guest female vocalist adding some additions. There is moments of actual keyboard, I believe, actually playing being played by Sean himself. Uh, the drums switch between an electric kit and a natural kit. Um, Sean's bass playing because it's mainly fretless or uh, on a Chapman stick throughout. Like he's really hard to determine exactly what's going on. Um, Damn, it should, it sounds like on paper it should be this absolute chaotic mess, but what you actually get is just this incredibly beautiful, melodic soundscape. It's it's a wonderful album. You can you can either pay attention to what any individual instrument's doing in it, and it's super exciting and complex, or you can just let it wash over you, and it's kind of just a beautiful atmosphere. Like, I won't go on about it too much longer because, as I say, we, we, we've dissected it at length before on the podcast, but I do think Focus is one of the greatest albums ever made. I think it's an absolute pinnacle for the genre of progressive death metal. I think it's something that many bands have tried to, you know, take influence and push in that direction, and none have quite managed to do it. Like, Cynic themselves in Reforming never put out anything like anywhere near the quality of focus and that's not to say their later stuff was bad it's just focus is near perfect it's this absolute bottled lightning of i don't know how this was remotely possible i don't know how a band went from being a slightly inf inventive death thrash band to putting out like this totally unique but perfectly realized vision and it's just everything about it is so right like the, the cover artwork is this beautifully trippy, impossible-to-describe picture that fits so perfectly with exactly what they're doing. And all of this was done under Scott Burns doing the sound. And Scott Burns tends to have, like, you know... He's good at his job, but he tends to make bands sound like solid death metal bands. But with this, like... I, I don't know how they came up with this, like, 
multi-layered, beautiful, technical masterpiece. Like 1993 was an absolute high point for the Roadrunner roster, but there's still some real gems in the next few years. There's a good crossover one here, actually. Um, early in 1994, we get Nailbomb, which is a collaboration between Alex Newport of Fudge Tunnel, which uh, mentioned briefly in the Eric Records episode, a kind of sludgy type, like, yeah, that kind of heavy sludge but like the UK spin on that kind of band um and Max Cavalera of uh obviously Sepultura with uh guest drumming from his, his brother and then a few guest guitar parts from uh Andreas Kisser and Dino from um from Fear Factory and what, what we have here with Point Blank is this ultra angry political album that is ridiculously to the point and just like fast, heavy, kind of like imagine everything on Sepultura is simplified, but just kept to being heavy and aggressive and in your face. Like I, I don't know. It's a very well loved album, and it is this kind of like brilliant to the point statement. For me, I don't think it quite lives up to necessarily um, the heights of of Sepultura it, it's it's a touch too simplistic I love the kind of the the venom of it and you know that's kind of reflected in the ridiculously over the top album cover of like a gun being put to a woman's head with you know coupled with the nail bomb title and point blank uh album title it's it's an intense experience but yeah, Nailbomb was sadly short-lived. Like they did one live show, and and that's recorded, and you can actually you get also Roadrunner put that out proud to commit commercial suicide, and that was kind of the end of it. But Nailbomb does lead me very neatly into the sort of sound of the next band. This is Machine Head's debut, Burn My Eyes. Uh, Burn My Eyes is one of those weird albums that I really love, 
despite not really having any time for anything else from the band. So Rob Flynn, former Machine Head, fresh out of his fresh like his rhythm guitarist, fresh band violence as the front man and guitarist and but my eyes is very much in that vein of you know where Sepultura are moving, where Pantera are moving, that sort of groove metal rather than thrash metal. That I'm still not quite sure what groove metal is, but it's it's that kind of Pantera-y thing where it's not as chuggy as like it's not as like open e-string chug as thrash. It's a lot more kind of slower, heavier riffs with cool drum grooves. And and that that is like the core of uh, of burn my eyes is just like really great grooves with like Rob Flynn's like really angry vocal approach over the top that sort of semi sung semi scream thing I think like kind of quite attached to the genre as well that sort of like it's a scream but there's sort of an edge of melodicism through it he's sort of he's normally holding a kind of note with each track. Nazam's obviously legendary for its opener, Davidian, if I can say it right. Um, And, like, that song is, you know, will be probably the band's most famous song for as long as they run. But there's loads of great tracks on this. The second track, Old, is incredibly catchy as well. And it is just, like, a really solidly put-together album. And I think something that probably sounded incredibly fresh in 1994. Now, I know, essentially, the format of this has been done so many times by so many other bands that I can kind of see people visiting this now for the first time and going, like, "Uh, yeah, I've heard this before. It's not really all that exciting. And... I can I can somewhat understand that that take on it, but to me I, I I really enjoyed this and I really do hold this up as like absolutely excellent. Um, Machine Head would obviously take a bizarre dive uh, with with future albums, although a lot of the the lineup from this album didn't come with them, particularly into the Burning Red era. Logan Madder, the um, guitarist with increasingly weird hair. Uh, went off and on his own thing and uh, Chris Contos the drummer um, I, I think he sort of quit music after after their second album um, but uh, they actually both brought back briefly for their, their sort of reunion Burn My Eyes tour so the band obviously left it on fairly good terms but yeah it's definitely an album I'd highly advise like revisiting if you've never given it a chance because it's Machine Head and much like me I was late into this album because my first experience to Machine Head was Supercharger, which is, in hindsight, a bit rubbish. Like, so yeah, like, and as I say, I haven't really, I couldn't even really get into like through the ashes of empires and uh, their their later stuff that is quite critically acclaimed. Like, but this album stood out as really decent and I'm kind of quite different to most of the other stuff I'd heard from this band. If you want to hear a really in depth review of this, um, we cover this album on a. Th- I think the third episode of the podcast.
this brings us to another album where I'm not quite sh sure if it was strictly a Roadrunner release. I think it was originally put out on Rotten Records, but Roadrunner did put it out in 94 as well. Uh, this is the legendary debut of Acid Bath, When the Kite String Pops. So Acid Bath, been going for a little while this time, I think initially under the name Golgotha, um, from uh, Louisiana, United States. And they they, they play this kind of really horrendous form of sludge so as you probably noticed from the podcast i am not the biggest sludge fan it's never a genre that's really clicked with me and i think some of that might be acid bath's fault like the first sludge album i ever bought ever really gave any time to was this one when the kite string pops and it is so hideously aggressive horrible while simultaneously being really powerful and upsetting in places it it was so much that nothing else ever quite lived up to it and i i know that's unfair i know the, the genre must have some absolute classics i'm missing and i just i need to spend more time on it but what i really want is something else like this and even later acid bath isn't quite like this this debut album it is there's so much use of stuff in this that just works perfectly when up but when other bands do it, it doesn't. Like the amount of like the whole album opens with these huge squealing feedbacks, and like so many of the songs have like almost thirty seconds of just horrendous distortion noise before anything actually happens. But then when we get to moments, like when we get to the riffs, they are so incredibly brutal, and with that mixed with this like brilliant. Um, kind of vocal trade-off of Dax Riggs really kind of soulful plain like cleans and then the free like guitarist and bass player adding these far more aggressive harsh vocals to play off it it, it makes this really intense distressing sound with songs um deeply rooted in subjects of addiction and suicide and just hundreds of horrendous topics and even ones that kind of like approach kind of like nonsensical ramblings like the opening to god machine are still like really troubling in their their kind of openness the the song like halfway through the album we get scream of the butterfly which is this suddenly melodic uh kind of like bass driven track where dax's vocals like are really like the primary thing in it but even that has moments of heaviness like moments of like double kick coming through and like when they're being melodic this band are kind of at their most upsetting but then that's followed up by dr zeus's dead and dope fiend which both get far more kind of brutal and nasty um a dope fiend with its like really catchy refrain of yeah motherfucker i'm high that that is then followed up by these sort of like weirder more introspective tracks like the mortician's flame or the bones of baby dolls which if you've never compared the two is an amazingly similar sort of song structure to uh mosquito song by queens of the stone age but i would say like a significantly more sinister version of that yeah everything about this album is deeply sinister from the john wayne gacy painting front cover to the entire lyrical content like the band have this incredibly like fucked up nature to them and that is well and truly capped off with the 
horrendous Cassie Cockroaches, the final track of the album, which is some of the most disturbing use of voice clips and audio samples in a song I think I've ever heard. So if you're not familiar with um, uh, with Acid Bath, they were very short-lived because sadly the the bass player uh, Audi Peter passed away like in 97 um and, but many of the members of the band went on to do other stuff uh if you like most metalheads would be familiar with some of sammy's output who uh who guitarists and backing vocalists went on to guitar and backing vocals in goat whore also was uh in crowbar for some of their most uh most famous famous years and Dax Riggs has quite an involved like solo career since and they as they they do have a second second album but for me i never got quite as into it because it just wasn't as fucked up it, it like it somewhat smoothed off the harsh edges of this and that's not what i really wanted from acid bath sort of skip ahead because there's not a great deal more to mention from this year we we got obituaries world demise but i think like most people it's fine but it was definitely a downturn from their like previous work going into 1995 it's clear roadrunner sort of managing a change of direction but there is still a few um albums from the old guard that really stand out and are worthy of comment some of the the last like popular greats of death metal so first up we have deicide once upon the cross now many think that the first two deicide albums are like the brilliant ones and there it sort of tails off for me i i think um once upon the cross and serpents of light are also absolutely great albums i, I mean, actually um 
my girlfriend pointed this out when I was listening to this album earlier earlier yesterday was you can see the massive Akakoka influence in Once Upon a Cross. If you strip all the kind of prog bits out of early Akakoka, that's like DSI at this point in time, that's spot on. Yeah, I think it's a really solid album. Maybe not quite up to the heights of Legion, but this and Servants of Light are, are absolutely like solid albums and yeah, I'm not quite sure why they get quite so much derision. Possibly just because Glenn Benton is such a um, such a difficult character. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we all we all accept that once they got to uh, incinerate him, like DSA kind of tailed off and then picked up again later with Century Redemption. But if you've if you've never given it a go, Once Upon the Cross is really worth a listen. Just don't be put off by the really silly front cover. Now. An absolutely brilliant one from this era that, yeah, obviously we couldn't skip past was Death's uh, sixth album, Symbolic. Now, Symbolic was... It's the last album I think Chuck really wanted to do as Death. So, obviously, this series is only going up to 95. We won't get to his his final album, The Band, The Sound of Perseverance. But uh, I think I've chatted about this that on the podcast before. I'm a huge fan of it. Like uh, Again, I know it's a divisive one. But like he went off and did Control Denied and sort of, I believe, somewhat resurrected Death to, to pay the bills of that album or at least to reach out to an audience he wasn't quite hitting with Control Denied. Whereas Symbolic seemed to be something he really wanted to do so once again there's a, a major lineup change although gene hoagland does make it through two albums um we we have the addition of bobby kilbell on, on guitar and kelly conlon on bass uh, both of which have been in a few other projects but nothing really um really huge after this uh kelly the bass player actually most famously is on um monstrosity's millennium and uh their in dark purity album so you know they were people with a bit of like a like a fairly solid uh death metal standing before they went into this now what i'd hinted at with my my reviews of like human and individual thought patterns is symbolic is where Death, I think, got particularly weird in terms of extending the song structures and throwing in sort of more out there ideas. Like, so with this album, you get tracks like Empty Words that start with this long sort of building up, like, kind of ambient, progressive intro before it gets into the proper track. You get, like, towards the end of the album, songs like Perennial Quest are really dragged out to the eight-minute mark. Now, it's not quite Sound of Perseverance where songs would, like, go on for ridiculous amounts of time, but there's the seeds of that in there. There's also something about the sound of this album, and it's hard to, like, kind of quantify, but it's it's a very dreamy-sounding album. It, it And the follow-up would be as well. Like, it has... Because it's it's lost a lot of the heaviness and has gone a bit more esoteric, it has this strange nature to it. Yeah, I, I don't know how else to put it. it it's sort of somewhat psychedelic for death metal. At the core of it, though, it's still brilliant riffing. Like, you listen to a track like A Thousand Eyes is just essentially a death metal version of an excellent rock song um, with just some fantastic lead guitar work. Chuck is coming up with some of his best vocal hooks on this album as well. I think there's a lot of really catchy choruses, despite him going for that scream vocal approach still. This album also features probably my all-time favourite death song, uh, 
no surprises it's crystal mountain with its like incredibly inventive structure where it's not actually a lot of repeating parts but it's still super memorable throughout uh, and cleverly dropping bits of like acoustic guitar solos over the like the fade out riff this album just start to finish is just utterly brilliant riffing and i say sound of perseverance is my favorite as time goes on symbolic is it probably is a better album. I, I don't know. It's it's a hard one with death. They've put out so much classic stuff. Like, is any of this better than Leprosy? Leprosy's, you know, pretty much perfect start to finish as well. It's just a very different style. But I feel this album as well, actually more so than Individual Thought Patterns, is one where Gene Hoagland was allowed to show off a bit more. Like, he, it's been interesting. It's not an obvious Gene Hoagland one, because I always think of... When I think of Gene Hoagland's drumming, I picture Strapping Young Lad. I, like, I picture that kind of precision, rhythmic stuff. Whereas this, though, he gets a bit more proggy. There's a lot of, like, kind of experimental drum fills. Not quite to the level Richard Christie would push that on the next album, but there is a lot more of that on this, and he, he's given a lot of space to show off. Um, the, the bass and, like, rhythm guitar work are really good on this as well. Um, I kind of like the tone of this album more than I do individual thought patterns. Like, again, that sort of slightly dreamy, psychedelic nature really fits it. The solo work is is incredible they are like chuck was always very good at writing solos and he's ju just got better and better with age yeah symbolic it, it it's absolutely brilliant <laughs> This brings us to the second to last album I'm going to cover and probably my most controversial statement of the entire podcast. Um, this is Suffocation's Pierced From Within, which I think is Suffocation's best album. I actually, I do think it tops the incredible debut, despite not having Mike Smith on drums. Um, I mean, Doug Bond's drum performance isn't quite up there, but what I really like about this album is... I feel everything is stepped up in terms of technicality from the previous two. Um, and everything that was 
kind of wrong for me with the guitar tone of the previous album is corrected on this. Like the bass is an amazing position in the mix in this album. I do, I fucking love the guitar tone of this from within. Like the overall sound of this album is so like gnarly and horrible. Um, and it's interesting as well because when this comes out, this is. Into 1995, Suffocation are really once again pushing the bounds of like technicality within while still keeping like songs of these kind of short to the point, uh, like you know, five minute death metal tracks, but throwing in so many cool ideas, so many like flashes of, of genius while still remaining very much a death metal band. And I think this would somewhat be where the fall of death metal kind of comes, uh, like in the coming years. Like it will like kind of tail off with it getting kind of generic. And I think the issue is because when we were talking about what death has just done, um, what Cynic has just done, and Suffocation putting this out in the kind of more brutal end of things, like it was so hard to top. You can see why... Um, sort of the underground went into this more brutal direction because I guess there was still more room to explore, but there's not many albums that are this like disgusting and brutal while still having such flashes of technical genius. Like uh, Terence Hobbs obviously like totally steals the show on this album. His his guitar work is is spectacular although the the other guitarist Doug Cerrito is is also absolutely brilliant and sadly other than the despise the sun ep like quite a lot of the members on this this is their last um last full length with suffocation uh Frank Mullen I think sounds even better on this album than he does on the debut uh I think Scott Burns has outdone himself on the production for this one this is towards the end I think of Scott Burns sort of career with this this kind of sound and like he had really got the hang of it and possibly why he subsequently kind of got bored and felt the need to move away from it. But yeah, th this Suffocation album is at the pinnacle of their ability. Like, there's some amazing tracks in it, like Suspended in uh, Suspended in Tribulation, Throws of Blood, even the title track Pierce from Within are just, like, really monumental. There are so many brilliant riffs and like just excellent ideas like i am just i'm really in love with the sound they went for in this album not to say the later suffocation isn't isn't really excellent like they they're yet another band who pretty much always put out solid albums but pierce from within is the, my my go-to it's the one that has the like true flash of inspiration like it, it, it felt like they had evolved once again despite like the near perfection effigy is as well like I, I i don't know for a band that made such a strong debut i love this album because it's one where they really have taken things up a notch from you know what should be a career best um in the form of effigy i had to look it up i, I wasn't sure what how much longer scott burns kept going he did actually continue for about two years on to about 1997 but the the point being is like when you're thinking about this era of time like i don't think there's many albums in the kind of more brutal realm that can hold a candle to this album at this point in the 90s and yeah it, it was Pierce from Within definitely sets a real high watermark for for extreme metal, particularly at a time when a lot of their contemporaries were were going more melodic, like Suffocation kept forging their own path and yeah, and it, it you know, their their hard work certainly paid off here. <laughs> 
towards the end there's one more album i'm gonna cover but um i mainly want to use the space to sort of summarize the thoughts on it the the idea i had with this much like with the earache one was not so much to celebrate the label but to watch that trajectory of bands and bands with like an overlapping interest like obviously if on the same label there is some kind of some kind of grouping there many of these artists would have toured together and that time period as well like 86 through to 95 very much charts that early um period of extreme metal the, the birth of death metal the birth of black metal also happened at the same time period but both earache and roadrunner completely missed out on that one i think there's probably another label i can cover that could do like yeah really could do doing like a maybe 90 1990 to 95 on a different label if you've got any suggestions for labels actually you'd like me to do this with let me know because it's quite a fun way to do stuff because you don't have to go too deep on any one band it's more giving quite a surface level thing as you know it's a lot of these reviews are quite you know only mentioning a few things but i, I couldn't go into too much detail be here all day and also for a lot of these bands like Christ, you've heard so much discussion of suffocation already i you don't need, need me to dissect exactly why why their brilliant heavy hole can do a much better job than I ever would with that. Um, but yeah, like what I think is kind of interesting here is the next album will really show the trajectory of where things were going. And in in a way, it's not a bad album, but 93 was the absolute high point of Roadrunner for me, and it quickly goes downhill from there. Like, as I say, 94 and 95 had some really good releases. Uh, but this is where they really show their true colours as being a trend-chasing label. Apparently many of the death metal bands on it 
felt they weren't very well represented, weren't pushed very hard after this point because they started picking up like the sort of new metal stuff. Like, like at this point in time, Corn have already put out the debut album. The new metal boom is coming. At this point, grunge is still very much the flavor of the moment. And Roadrunner would quickly make a move to embrace those two. And the band sort of went along with them and sort of... I kind of survived the transition into that sort of era was Fear Factory. So their second album, Demanufacture, um, very much a softer album than, uh, than Soul of the New Machine. Soul of the New Machine, clearly a death metal album. I would have a hard time calling Demanufacture a, a death metal album. It's far more an industrial metal album, whatever that really means. But, like, with this album, Burton Sea Bells cleans uh, way more utilised. There's a lot of... There's a lot of, actually, like, almost that metalcore-y thing of heavy verse, clean chorus. This still has that kind of, like, mechanical rhythm to it. There's, um, there's a lot of similarities between this... And um and like say like strapping on lad, uh that kind of sound like you know, a lot of what I would later credit Gene Hoagland as doing, like Raymond Hera is doing on this album. Um and yeah, it's it is really catchy in a lot of places. Stuff like the single replica is like really well pulled off. There is that whole kind of cool like sci-fi vein running through it like i believe it's the sci-fi concept album the issue i've always had with fear factory is i don't rate burton as a vocalist i feel uh especially when you watch him live like his cleans don't hold up that well and his screams are fine but they're not they're not incredible but there, there's a lot of interesting things going on in this album i think it's one that possibly at the time was a hell of a lot more exciting than it feels now because it's something that's been very mined as i say like there is slight new metalisms to it and not the worst of that but i think a lot of those kind of bands borrowed heavily from this as they would from a few other albums we're going to talk about but it's still a really decent album maybe some odd choices i'm not quite sure about the inclusion of the head of david cover dog day sunrise in the the middle of the runtime. If you want a more in-depth section, I remember Requiem Metal did a really good episode. I think where they just like for an hour picked this album apart, um, with one of them being a fan and one of them not. Um, I'd probably sit more in the middle. It's like a, it's a solid like six point five out of ten for me, something like that. Like it, it's good, but it's it's not incredible, and it's not something I I guess I dig out all that often. But yeah, it, as I say, it would start showing a trend for where Roadrunner are about to go. And where Roadrunner sort of go a lot of the times is just following the kind of what is about to be popular. So in the coming years, we'd have some real landmarks come out. Like Type of Negative put out October Rust uh, in 1996. Um, as I say, finally for them, cementing their style without pissing around quite so much. Sepultura will put out Roots, which, you know, yet another, like along with Demanufacture, are real catalyst for new Metal. And then I believe Soulfly, yeah, Soulfly's debut, self-titled, is on that label, which is Max splitting from the band and going even more down that simplistic, more, more groove-chasing, less, like... 
less of the thrash like or the, i mean that sulfur debut the thrash is basically completely gone from it and roots it's it's not there throughout it's definitely more of a kind of groove metal riffing as much as i enjoy the odd track of roots but as an album like <laughs> and it's place in history yeah i have my issues with it it's not something i really dig out all that often the big like egregious one is machine head will put out the burning red they've got the more things change in between which is a fairly unremarkable one and then the burning red as i say like if you've if you've not watched it in a while look up the video for from this day off this album it is fucking incredible like I know Rob Flynn like rails against us now, but the the extent to which he sort of sold out and trend chased with with this band is is pretty incredible. Now, like Roadrunner would go on to evolve and like really lean into this whole new metal craze, and then as that sort of burnt out, they very much got into the metalcore craze and the kind of. Um, a lot of the that that kind of genre of rock that went alongside it, picking up bands like Trivium and Devil Driver, like fairly heavy hitters from the metalcore bit, and then like Alter Bridge, who you know went on to pretty huge success. Killswitch Engage were with them for a while. Oh, they even had Nickelback in their 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 kind of repertoire. Oh, and I forgot to mention Slipknot. Like like uh, uh, many bands rant about how. Roadrunner for a lot of their like active lifespan just traded on having Slipknot and Nickelback in their repertoire. I think as a label they've been more or less like gutted at this point. Although in recent years, like they did put out um, like the most recent Trivium album, Gojira's Magma. I think the most recent Dream Theater album. Although I believe they've now less left the label. But yeah, as I say with this episode, it was never meant to be like a celebration label, as you can see with all that kind of stuff. Like. Roadrunner are just a really good, um, at least any year you look back, look at what's popular on their roster, and that is, that was what was the prevailing wind in metal at the time, and that's how, that's why this like like lineup of stuff say I was looking at ninety three was so interesting because the the kind of core of what metal like what was really popular in metal in ninety three was actually quite interesting. It was quite a you know, kind of um, exciting time for the genre. It's just, you know, things sort of blew up and too many people tried it and the good stuff got buried, much like sort of I, I hinted at in my like, Death Metal Hidden Gems episode. A lot of that stuff that sort of came out in 94, 95, 96, like great death metal albums, got buried by just too many bands doing it and too many labels, like, who didn't really understand death metal signing whatever death metal band came along and yeah like it it they got a little stagnant but you know evolved into interesting new things like this is where melodic death metal would appear this is where brutal death metal would really would find its roots and um and yeah like some of the more progressive end of it where, yeah you know out of that time period we we had opeth appear and opeth actually a band um i discovered free road on a record so I believe Ghost Reveries was one they put out, but not a, not a label they lasted with long. What's actually really interesting to look back at this label as a whole, actually, is that um, Roadrunner United album they did in 2005, because I was a big Trivium fan at that age. I remember getting like deep into that, that album, which was, if you're not aware of it, they got like Matt Heafy of Trivium, um, 
Joey Jordison, uh, Dino from Fear Factory, and I believe Rob Flynn to each like head up teams where they had to record like four songs each, each one with a different lineup of people from the the Roadrunner roster. So you've got these mad songs like um, In the Fire has King Diamond and the Trivium guitarists with the bass player of Killswitch Engage, I think, and the drummer from Il Nino playing essentially a Merciful Fate song. Or um, another one of Matt Heafy's that's really interesting is a track called Dawn of the Golden Age, where we had Danny Phil from Cradle of Filth, who apparently on the label at some point as well, um, and like Matt Heafy providing the guitars and I believe keyboards for like this kind of Cradle of Filthy black metal song, but the rhythm section for it is still the greatest rhythm section I've ever heard. I think, well, not ever heard, I was stretching it, but one of the greatest rhythm sections I've heard on a black metal song. And I wish there was a full album of them them doing this maybe with Matt Heafy, of Mike Smith of Suffocation and Sean Malone of, of Cynic fame playing this incredibly intense backing to a track that's... I mean, even Danny Filth can't spoil it. It's... it's like absolutely incredible but then yeah so you have all these collaborations with like people of the new metal era um but working alongside like old greats from death metal like typo appear at the ends mike lackavelt does like an acoustic song on it it is a very schizophrenic odd album but i i find it such an interesting artifact and for me as a teenager it was an amazing find because i heard that and then I wanted to find out who the hell Sean Malone and Mike Smith were. Um, and, and James Murphy has a solo on on a track led by Glenn Benton of Deerside. So I went to find out who James Murphy was. Saw he was in... Uh, saw he was in Disincarnate. Picked that album up. Equally um, picked up Deerside's Stench of Redemption because I'd heard Glenn Benton on that track and it was the heaviest vocals I'd ever heard at the time. But mixing that as like Corey Taylor doing his thing on it, which, you know, yeah, it's it's a very interesting album in that regard. And I, I think um, shows like kind of how all over the place Roadrunner went. Again, I say I don't think they're a particularly nice label and I don't really want this to be seen as a celebration of them because the general prevailing feeling I've got from them is they're a, ba- they're, they're a label that would lesser band gets to a certain um a certain point of popularity and then sort of hang them out to drive like that wasn't the flavor of the moment at that point in time but yeah you know like maybe maybe that's bands reflecting on it harshly i don't i honestly don't know but the idea with this was just to chart that that kind of that change over time and you know see the prevailing wind of metal for that whole decade long period i was saying uh, i think in the previous episode definitely if you haven't heard it listen to that earache records one covering the same 10 years before this i think that i think they'll give you a really good sort of counterpoint because saying this one didn't really get into much like um we didn't touch on black metal doesn't really touch on the melodic death metal whereas that really starts like creeping in on the Eric roster particularly with, like carcasses heart work anyway i am now rambling away at the end of this 
Let me know what you missed. As I say, I made my notes for this ages ago. This was originally meant to be episode 49. So um, I'm certain there's bands I've missed. There's a couple, like, a bit too slowly we wrote in the previous episode that I almost left out by accident. So, yeah, I think there's a huge slew of great albums um, from this time period I've not covered. So if I missed anything you really love, hit me up, let me know, like, let me know your favourites. Let me know any you, you kind of you disagree with my take on. If there's some in there I've been a bit lukewarm on that you you think really deserve reappraisal. Yeah, yeah, get in touch. So you can contact me, um, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail dot com, uh, or one word at Breakfast Metal on Twitter. Yeah, just yeah, let me know what you think. And also, if you've got any suggestions for for stuff you'd like covered in future, I'm always I'm always looking for ideas for new episodes. So yeah, that'd be great. Anyway, um, thanks a lot for listening. Mm-hmm.